Jeff, thank you so much for leading us in song and worship this morning. All right, so as I had mentioned earlier, we are in the Gospel of John this morning, as we have been for several months. Now, I kind of highlighted or prefaced this last Sunday um, going into this text, that this is going to be a sermon unlike probably any we have heard in a long, long time. As a matter of fact, um, a text of this nature I've only ever heard preached once before. Um, so bear with me today as I maybe muddle through this, and because it's unfamiliar the way this this is going to happen. Um, so those of you that know me, Don, I'm sure was welcomed back by my fact I had no sermon title. Um, and as you see there, <clears throat> there is still no sermon title. But there was a reason I chose not to have a sermon title for this text. And I just wanted the text there. Um, so this text, um, like I said, last time I've heard one preached in this, of this of, of this type was years ago when Doug was here, preached Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. Now, if you go to John chapter 8, and you look, there's a bracket in your ESV, um, and I'm sure, all, I think almost all the modern English transa translations have some kind of bracket or footnote within them that says something along the lines of, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. Right, and that's what we have here in the ESV, and I'm sure it is, like I said, similar in all the other English, modern English translations. And so this morning, as we come to this text, what do we do? How do we approach such a text? And why do we so approach such a text in the manner that we are doing so? If we consider the doctrine of inerrancy, the doctrine of inspiration, as we trust fully in the texts of scripture that we have for general revelation, for, uh, for special revelation, what do we do with such a text? Because here's the deal, and this has been my stress this week, the thing that I have worried about the most in the, this week and in the weeks ahead, if you not, I don't think any of you have access to the preaching calendar, but in the preaching calendar, this text has been highlighted in red since November. Because I knew it was coming. And here's been my concern. My concern this week is that, one, you don't walk away thinking the planter of this church is out of his mind and has lost his faith. And two, even more importantly, thinking I cannot trust the Bible I hold in my hand. Those are the two biggest things that I have been worried about this week and in the weeks leading up to this text. So how do we approach it? There are several ways that you can approach this text. Mark 8, or 7.53 to 8.11, as I skipped 7.53 last week. There are several ways. We could preach through it as if that bracket didn't exist, as if what we know of this text didn't exist, as if... This text, we've, I believe, was an inerrant piece of scripture. We could do that. People do do that. If you go look at like A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink's commentary, that's essentially what he says as he outlines this. And I will say I have leaned very heavily on scholars 
for this passage. Because this is not my strong suit. We could skip it completely and just go into 8.12 this morning and act like I just ignored 11 passages, several paragraphs, and just forgot they were there. Could do that. We could spend time kind of reading the passage and kind of discussing the greater moral teachings of the passage. I've seen that done. Um, and I'm not certainly opposed to that. Um, or, as what I'm going to do today, is spend time thinking through what Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 tells us of three things. The role of the preacher and what preaching is to be. Why I am not going to read this text. Why I'm not going to preach it. And then, why our Bibles are, are trustworthy. Why we can trust the words we have in front of me that you are holding in your hands. Those are the three things I seek to accomplish today. So, let's think first. Well, let's pray first. And then we will get into what it means to preach. And what the role of a preacher is. Father, be with us this morning. Lord, you have known the hesitancy and worry I have had personally approaching this text. Lord, you have already sovereignly and providentially laid that out to happen. And Lord, as we spoke about last week in your providence and sovereignty, Lord, let us rest and trust in that. Lord, teach us, lead us this morning, guide us. Be with us. We pray these things in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so as I said, discussing three things. The role of the preacher, what preaching is to be, why I am skipping over this text, or not skipping it, but I'm not going to read it and preach it, and three, why our scriptures are trustworthy. So, the role of the task and the preacher today. There are many misconceptions out there. You can go to many churches throughout this city. You can probably go to many churches within a two to three mile radius of this building. And you will find many different thoughts on what preaching is to be. You will go and you will see different types of preaching. You will hear different preachers talk about different things. Some may be in the Bible. Some may not be in the Bible. You may hear people use the Bible in different ways. But our goal right now is to think about what the role of the preacher and preaching is. Because I believe this is important in understanding why we are not going to preach through 753 to 8, 1 to 11. Okay. So first and foremost, what they are not, a preacher and preaching is not the pushing of social agendas. The role of the preacher and preaching is not pushing social agendas. Okay? We live in a day and age in which social agendas are the cream of the crop. Fixing society comes through social agendas. Those social agendas can be conservative politically or theologically, those social agendas could be liberal socially, theologically. It doesn't matter. Pushing social agendas. How do we fix 
the inequalities in the inner city? How do we fix the issues of my roads not being paved right? How do we fix um, this homeless shelter and improving its, uh, the food and the, the space that is available? Many churches in our city, many churches in our country, many churches around the world are going to be pushers of a social agenda. We fix these through government monies. We fix this through welfare. We fix this through blah, 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 blah. Or on the flip side, the other ditch, we fix this by telling people to work harder, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, tie them on tighter, get a job, get to work, go. That's going to fix the problems that we have. Think of the political debates you hear on the TV or the talking heads on Fox and CNN. Think of the, the radio talk show hosts you hear. Much of that is not very far from pulpits and what they're pushing. And I suggest to you that the role of the preacher in the preaching of the gospel is not the pushing of social agendas. Now, does the preacher and the preaching of the gospel impact social understandings? By all means. There are implications of the gospel that work themselves out in how we approach society. There is no doubt in my mind that that is true. When we apply scripture in real life, there is outworkings. We are all members of society, and if we are properly, rightly practicing the gospel, living and representing Christ, there is a societal impact. But the role of the preacher and the preaching is not to be a pusher of agendas. The scripture is to be what molds us and shapes us and informs how we approach societal issues. Political agendas. We just, well, it's been a few years. We've, we've gone through several election cycles that have been very heated. We've heard different talks on, on the elections. There's even now discussion of what's coming up in 2024, right? Those talks have begun. The role of the preaching and preacher is not to push a political agenda. You go to and think of some big churches down in Dallas, SBC churches, unfortunately, and they have 4th of July celebrations, and, and, and Sean Hannity comes up to give the sermon, and there's American flag singing, and we're singing, uh, you know, John Philip Sousa on Sunday morning, these types of things. No, we are not pushers of a political agenda. Right? We, we should not be sitting up here hearing endorsements of specific candidates. We should not be up here, uh, me binding consciences about what you are to do in coming elections. The role of the preacher and preaching is not one of pushing political agendas. Now you might say societal agendas, political agendas, what's the difference? My answer, well, there's probably not tons of difference if that's the world you reside in. But the reality is, and my point being, both politically and societally, there are not agendas we are pushing. And I will say it one more time for the sake of emphasis, as believers in Christ who have been molded by the Spirit, there are certainly impacts that are played out in those spheres. And I am not one who believes that we are to hide and withdraw and be, be secluded from those spheres, but we are to be believers rightly living in those spheres whose lives and faith are impacting the worlds we live in. 
Now, the problem with both of these things, with pushing social, pushing political agendas, is guess who the center of them are? The preacher. I might take my beliefs, what I believe to be a problem, and push it towards you, and then that be a binding thing as I am the one in the pulpit preaching it. You see the problem there, right? What is the point of Sunday mornings? What is the point of gathering for worship? The point of gathering for worship, I believe, is the feeding of the flock. And I cannot feed you and expect you to be sustained and living in faith if I am feeding you from my own personal beliefs. From my own understandings. The role of the preacher and preaching is to feed the sheep and feed himself upon what? The word of God. For he is capital T, truth. He is the one who rightly informs the way we live in those spheres. And if I am simply feeding you of my own personal agendas, I should be fired, I should be let go, told to leave, because that is not what will feed the flock. Right? As, as we've prayed over every past Sunday, Lord, feed us by your word. We need the word of God to be fed, to live rightly in the spheres of life in which we reside. The preacher is not the authority. The head of the church is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his word, the word of God, is the authority. Another thing that preaching isn't, and it's kind of ironic because this is kind of one of those, is topical sermons. What is a topical sermon? A topical sermon is a, okay, so Russia has invaded Ukraine. Now all of a sudden we are going to stop what we're doing and we are going to preach a sermon on pacifism or we are going to preach a sermon on why war is bad or it's a sermon in which the topic is what drives home the point when in fact preaching is the reverse. The text drives home the point. The text is what informs the point. The text is what leads us to the application and the points. Topical sermons, one in which I feel like I need to preach on something, so I'm going to step here, preach on it, and I'm going to find such and such a passage to prove my point. Proof texting. I hesitate to call that preaching. Are there times for such things? Yes, I think there are. Do I think they're regular? No, I do not. I think they are very, very sporadic. And when very serious things happen, whether in the country, world, or within the body of the church itself. But I believe Sunday mornings, the point of preaching and the role of the preacher is to take a text, as we have been doing with John, and we are to read it, preach it, apply it. Text by text, verse by verse. Okay. I've already gotten ahead of myself a little bit here. But so, those are the things preaching and the preacher is not to do and to be. So what is the role of the preacher? I mentioned Ephesians 4. If you are there, excellent. If not, take a second and turn to Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. I think over the summer months what we're going to do is take a brief hiatus from John and preach through the, God, or the, the, the epistle to Ephesians during the summer. 
because of the impact it has on a church. And so here, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, let's look at this passage as we continue to navigate what John 7 and 8 mean for us today. All right. Well, I'll start from verse 1 just so we can have the whole text. I, this is Paul writing, therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, writing to faithful believers. He says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another to love, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's hope and comfort there. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And here, let's get into our point this morning, Ephesians 11 to, um, to 16. Christ being the head of all, the one leading here as Paul writes, And he, Christ, what did he do? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. All of these, I hesitate to call them all offices in our current day and age, but all of these titles are roles of what? Teachers. These are all people who are preaching and teaching. And what is their task? So what is the role of a preacher and the teacher? It is to do this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The role of the preacher is to equip the saints for ministry, to serve each other and to serve those outside of these walls. The role of the preacher, teacher, prophet, evangelist, shepherd is for the building up of the body of Christ. So It's not just to equip us for ministry, but it is also to help us to mature into Christ-likeness so we may reflect his image. And he continues. So we are to build up the body in Christ until what? Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So there is an element of teaching which needs to unify the body, needs to bring the body together, needs to help the body to grow in Christ-likeness, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, the task of the preacher and preaching, the role of preaching, is not one of just simple, simple social fixes. That's far too simple you got to understand the weight of what preaching and the preacher is. It is to help the church grow into the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let that sink in. Have any of us, would any of us claim of ourselves that we have received or we have gone to a place of such maturity that we ourselves maintain and carry the stature of the fullness of our Lord and Savior? None of us would say that. None of us can say that until eternity. But 
the task of the teacher is one of true, true importance. And it is far too simplistic to say that they need to push this or push that. It is to bring unity in the flock and to help the flock grow in Christ. Why? Why does Paul say that this is the task? Why is this a role of the preacher? It is so that we may no longer be children. And what does that mean? Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We must be a church and a people and have preaching that reflects conviction. Not just willy-nilly conviction like, yeah, this is a good color wall, we're not going to change the paint in here. But a conviction of Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And it is only by Christ that one may enter into the kingdom. Think of Nicodemus, right? John 3, we just saw Nicodemus again last week in John 7. He comes to Christ in the night. Christ, Jesus, what does this mean, this new birth? We must be a people who stand convictionally on the fact that it is by this new birth that one can enter into the kingdom of God. And how does one receive this new birth? Well, by the Spirit giving faith, as we read in Hebrews 11. This faith, the Spirit moving in us, giving us faith. So that we may see Christ and our need for him. Paul continues. Rather, right? So rather, speaking the truth in love, this is what we are to do. So instead of being children tossed to and fro, we are to be people growing to mature manhood. We are to speak the truth in love. To grow up in every way into him who is the head. Into Christ. Again, let the weight of that sink in. That is not an optional choice. You don't get to choose as a believer, yeah, maybe I want to be like Christ. Maybe not. It's not an option. And the preacher and teacher is not allowed to, it's not allowed to let that be an option. We are to grow into Christ's likeness. Why? Because from whom? From him, from Christ, the whole body, the church, is joined and held together by every joint. And when each part is working properly, when we are healthy, when we are understanding what Christ has called us to do and to be, the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. And you see, the word of God, the teaching, is essential and central to all of those things. Because Christ certainly will not grow his church that abandons his word. We have examples of this, do we not? We think of Old, Te uh, Old Temple, Old Testament examples, these descriptive examples in nature. What do we have? Um, descriptive in nature, these examples. We have Nehemiah 8. They have returned from their, uh, from their, from their um, 
They're conquering. They have been returned to Jerusalem. They're building the walls, trying to fortify the city again now that they have returned back to their promised land. And what happens? They rediscover the law, the book of the law, and they take it out and they read it. And as they're reading it from a platform, as they're reading it to the people, there are also people going around helping the people to understand the law. Preaching is the teaching of the word so that we may understand and apply. Just as Nehemiah and Ezra were standing, teaching, reading the word, others were going around helping them to know and understand so that way they may be faithful to God as they had not been in the past. We see this with the prophets. All of the Old Testament prophets who are faithful. Thus saith the Lord. And there are even penalties for those who claim, thus saith the Lord, but actually are not, thus saith the Lord. What is that penalty in Deuteronomy and Exodus, the early books of the law? It's death. Stoning. Those false prophets have punishments of death. But the role of the prophet is not to just be a future teller. The, the prophet is not some kind of like necromancer, future seer. The role of the prophet is to speak the word that God gave them to the people. And so they rightly say, thus saith the Lord. They speak God's word to God's people. Don't let that sink out of your mind. Thus saith the Lord. We have our New Testament examples. Christ himself, the exemplar. What does Hebrews 1 call him? The, the final prophet, capital P prophet. We spoke about this in John 7 last week as some of the people are talking. They say, oh, is this the prophet, capital P? Oh, this is the Christ. Remember, those are two different terms. Capital P prophet was referring to a promise that was given to Moses that a prophet would come after him and be like him but be better. Jesus is the capital P prophet that Moses was promised, that the people were promised, and the people of Israel in John 7 were seeing, oh, this, this is the promised prophet that was told to Moses. And then in Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews refers to him as such. Jesus, his trifold office, we talked about this last week, of prophet, priest, and king. His words were not his own words. His words were the words of the Father. He came in complete obedience to carry out the will of the Father and to speak his words. Not to carry out his own rogue mission, but to carry out in complete obedience the will of the Father. To speak God's word. And he does so. And he even takes the Old Testament texts. He says, he uses Isaiah and he says, and he reads those and he says, this is me. He uses the texts of scripture to teach. Even, and this is kind of meta a little bit, but the epistles themselves, they were written, they were sent. And what happened with those? They were read aloud in front of congregations so they may hear and learn. You can imagine Paul writing Ephesians in jail and sending it off. And then his buddy gets it and he stands in front of the church and says, here's what Paul says. You see, preaching is not just an agenda. Socially, politically, personally. 
It is the proclamation of thus saith the Lord. God inspiring humans by his spirit to pen these works by their own character and being for our use. Thus saith the Lord. Which leads us to our text of John 7.53 to 8.1 to 11. If I cannot stand here and say, thus saith the Lord, I cannot stand here and preach Mark 7.53 to 8.1 to 11. You see, there is a responsibility of preaching the word of God to the people of God so the Spirit may feed us. And again, we note the bracket of John 8. We note the bracket of Mark 16. I cannot say, thus saith the Lord. I cannot preach that text. So why do I say that? What do we know about this text? One of the commentaries I've been relying on heavily throughout this preaching uh, calendar. Don Carson he writes this, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. One of the world's leading scholars on New Testament studies. Bruce Metzger, now no longer alive, but also a leading scholar, says this, the evidence of the Johannine origin of the pericope of the adulteress is overwhelming. The evidence that it's not part is overwhelming. Leon Morris, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is authentic to the part of the gospel. Andreas Kostenberger, this represents overwhelming evidence that the section is non-Johannine. Herman Ritterboss, the evidences point to an unstable tradition that is not originally part of an ecclesiastically accepted text. Bill Cook, right here in Louisville. While many scholars understand the story is likely to be historical, they do not think that it was written by the Apostle John. Since there is considerable probability that John did not write it, there is reason to avoid according to canonical authority. Some of the world's leading scholars on New Testament studies. So what leads them to those conclusions? Why are they concluding such things? Well, some digging found this out. This text, John 53... John 7, 53 to 8, 1 through 11, is missing from all Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of John before the 5th century. This text does not exist in any of our earliest manuscripts of John. It is not in them. Up until the year, what, 500, if my math, I'm not a math guy, 500, the 5th century. It is missing from the oldest Syriac, Coptic, Old Latin, Old Georgian, Armenian manuscripts. The oldest manuscripts of biblical manuscripts we possess, this is absent. <clears throat> the earliest church fathers omit this passage. They do not use this passage. 
There are no Eastern church fathers. So you think of the Gregories, right? Nazianzus, all of those guys, the Gregories, the three of them. The Eastern church fathers, none of them cite this passage before the 10th century. This one's interesting. The flow, if you read from John 7.52 to 8.12, it fits. If we read from 7.52 to this, then to 8.12, it's awkward. The flow of the passage does not make sense. And this one is even more interesting. When this passage does begin to appear, it is found in four different places. When this passage first begins to appear, it is found in John 7.36, it's found in John 7.44, it's found in John 21.25, and it's also found in Luke 21.38. So you see, there is ample evidence just in that, those facts alone, that this has been added later and is not from John. 500 years later, by all appearances. And then lastly, the language, and I'm not a language Greek scholar, so I wouldn't, couldn't confirm this one. But the language and the style and the vocab is not the same as the rest of the gospel. You'd probably have to know Greek to be able to understand that and know that, um, which I'm not, like I said, a scholar in Greek. But the language, the style, the vocab is not the same as John's gospel and his epistles. Okay. So the evidence is for why we're overlooking this passage. But here is now the question, like I said, that I was so worried about all week. You trust me and you trust your scriptures, more importantly. So how do we know that we can then trust the Bible you are holding in your hand? Does it change anything? My personal belief and what I'm going to try and show today is that it changes nothing. In how we trust this text. So why? Well, here are some of the texts, ancient texts, that are used today to teach, to learn, that are used as authoritative in informing us how ancient civilizations lived. Here are some of those texts. One, the Gaelic Wars, written by Julius Caesar, right? We all know Julius Caesar. Shakespeare wrote a nice, nice play about him. The guy, the Ides of March, he was killed by all his buddies in the court. So he wrote this book, Gaelic Wars, 58 to 50 BC, so about 50 years before Jesus was born. There are 10 copies that exist. There are 10 manuscripts that exist of this text. And all of them are later than the 10th century. So they're all a thousand years later than the original texts of his books were written. And they are authoritative. Scholars used them. Roman history written by Linny. Linny was a philosopher and a playwright in ancient Rome. This was written around the same exact time that Jesus lived, 0 to 30 AD. Uh, this was a book, obviously, on the history of Rome, hence the name. Of that, there are 20 copies that exist, 20 ancient manuscripts that exist. Tacitus, he wrote the Annals and the Histories, a philosopher of Rome, around 100 AD, so we're talking, what, 70 years after Jesus' death. There are two existing manuscripts of the Annals and the Histories. One is from the 9th century, one is from the 11th century. Talking 900 years, 1100 years after. Thucydides, another, no, this was a Greek. He was an ancient Greek philosopher in Athens. 
He wrote the book History, 460 to 400 BC, so really, really old. There are eight copies left that exist. And then this one I just pulled out. This one was one I wanted to look up. So Iliad, or Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? You've all gone to high school. You've probably all had to read the Odyssey at least at some point. Maybe you enjoy ancient text, and so you read it now, right? But the Iliad and the Odyssey, it has the most manuscripts of any ancient text, excluding the Bible, getting ahead of myself. It has the most manuscripts of any ancient text, 1,000. There are 1,000 manuscripts of the Iliad and the Odyssey that exist, that are considered ancient. Now, this was written in the 8th century BC, so we're even older than Thucydides here. These are, like I said, still taught in school. I remember reading the Odyssey. Now, the oldest of the Iliad Odyssey manuscripts, the oldest is from the 3rd century BC. So if this was written 8th century, 3rd century, talking what, 500 years? 300 of those manuscripts date to the Middle Ages, 9th to 15th century, so now we're pushing that back a few thousand years at that point. And all of these texts are still deemed authentic, usable, scholarly, studyable, taught in high school, some taught in universities, depending on your program. These are all authoritative. Now, what does this mean for the scriptures? All right, so all these ancient texts. Printing press was invented in the mid-1500s. So all of these texts, mind you, have been copied not by a printer, not by a computer, not by a machine, have been copied for hundreds of thousands of years by hand. Scribes, faithfully desiring to copy these texts so they could be replicable to future generations, more and more, faithfully writing by hand. Yes, spelling mistakes happen. Yes, punctuation happens, but none of those things have ever ruled any of these texts out from study. These are all very small errors that affect nothing of the historicity of the document. That same argument is exactly the same, to be redundant, as the texts of Scripture. Now, so, the biblical manuscripts, as I said before, Homer has 1,000 existing ancient manuscripts. The texts of scripture, 5,801. And I'm sure that number is higher now. 5,800 existing ancient manuscripts from the Bible. That's a lot more than Homer. Okay? That number is constantly growing. Now, what of the Old Testament? So, The oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament, 650 to 587 B.C. is when they're dated. 650 to 587 B.C. The most famous, Dead Sea Scrolls, 150 to 70 B.C. These are ancient. The Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, 300 to 100 B.C. You see, and I want to point out the the closeness of the years here. They are not... Not thousands of years later that the manuscript is is close. New Testament, Papyrus 46, 175 to 220 AD. You see, that's a hundred years difference. 
Not 500. Not 1,100. One. Papyrus 52, 2nd century, so probably just a little after Papyrus 46. Papyrus 45, 3rd century. How about this one? The Vaticanus, 325 A.D. is most of the New Testament. 325 A.D. The Sinaiticus, the full New Testament, first full New Testament, 350 A.D. Again, you see the years compared to these other texts. Not thousands of years difference from the earliest manuscripts from the writing. 100, 200, 250. So what does that mean for our texts? Does that mean our text is trustworthy? I already mentioned, as people will like to throw out in the world today, oh, that was written by scribes, that means there's errors, that means there's spelling problems, that means you can't trust it. And yes, there would be spelling errors. And yes, there would be punctuation problems. And yes, some of those human errors will come into place. But none of those errors impact anything in terms of doctrine, theology, and what the text is telling us. And to push it even farther, the more manuscripts you have, the better you can figure out what the problem is. Think about it. If I have two texts, I have... Story one, story two, they're the same story. This one is really different than this one. Which one is correct? No one can ever decide. No one will know which one is correct if you have two of the same documents, but yet there are changes in them because there's only two. Right? Makes sense. Now, imagine you had five copies. Copy one, two, three, and four are identical, copy 5 has John 7, 5, 53, 8 to 11 in it. Oh, okay. That one is unlike the others. We can see the, see the point, right? Now imagine 5,801 copies. You start to see these all match. These are all completely perfect, maybe with the exception of spelling issues. These are all completely the same. And then we've got a handful that, this is weird, this is completely out of left field, this doesn't resemble anything in those texts. You see, does that make sense? So can we trust this to be authoritative in our lives? I certainly hope that what I have shared has made that clear. Now, as a faithful 1689 subscriber the second london confession tells us this i'm going to read a few of these paragraphs maybe less than i wanted for the sake of time and i've read this i think probably three times in the last several months the holy scripture is what it is the only sufficient certain and infallible rule of all saving knowledge faith and obedience we talk about general revelation. We can go out and do a little Romans 1 study or go out and do a Psalm 19 and look and see the beauty of creation and know that, wow, something, somebody created that. But that's about as far as we can get to. However, through God's graciousness, the work of his spirit, we have special revelation, which Psalm 19, Romans, also fills us in on. 
that tell us what we need to know about ourselves so that we may know we need a Savior. We can't know of our need for Christ without understanding what God says to us about us. Although, and this will get into what I was just saying, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and uh, I lost my spot, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, I love this, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing. His word, committed to writing which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary. To be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now completed. You see, where do we know what we need? It's not from the prophet on the street corner who claims that he is an apostle. The words of God the canon of Scripture have closed, and He has generously, graciously given them to us so we may know of Him. And so, with that being said, next week, praise the Lord, we are going to get into John 8, 12, and we will continue as Jesus is still in this festival of booths. And this engagement, this interaction at the temple and his teaching is still happening. Well, in the text, it's still happening. And that's where we will be next week. Let us pray and close with that. Father, Father, may our faith ever increase. Lord, I know for Myself personally, Lord, that I just desire that my faith grow and grow, that I may trust in you fully and wholly and completely. So, Lord, by your word, feed us throughout this week as we spend time reading your scripture, as we spend time hearing your word. Lord, may your spirit pour that out into our hearts. May next week, Lord, if it be your will, we gather and hear John 8, 12 preached, and we receive from you whatever knowledge and wisdom you might have for us from that text. Thank you for your goodness, for your graciousness. Thank you for the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to redeem a holy and completely unworthy people. May we never forget that. In Jesus' name, amen.